for September 11th, 2023. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 793. That's what the bread is for. Hey, it's the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture... To a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. That's right. It's, uh, but it's, um, but uh, 9.15 on a Sunday, the regular crowd all logs on. There are three dads sitting next to me, hoping their kids don't hear this song. They say, son, can you? No, the, um, hey, I'm, uh, I'm Matt Rather. Our, our good friend Pete Fenzel has been, uh, floating away on a river of dreams. No, it's actually it's actually not the river, but uh, but uh, some storms uh, there that uh, make it impossible for him to join us. So we uh, we wish Pete and his family all the best, uh, you know. But um, hey, you know the 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 old podcast, new junk. Even if it's all stunk, it's still podcasting to me. I obviously should have pre-written all of these bits. I'm Matt Rather. I am joined uh, by the regular crowd. It's Matt Belinky. Hey, Matt. Thanks for joining. Mm-hmm. Well, we all have a face that we hide away for podcasts. <laughs> Mark Lee is with us tonight. Uh, as for me, I'm still in the Navy and probably will be for light, Matt. So sorry. <laughs> and uh, and Jordan Stokes joins us. Hello, sir. Small craft warning on the radio. <laughs> okay, um, so wh- why are we all why are we all quoting these lyrics? Well, you know, as we were chatting this week, um, I don't know if you know that, but Bernie Taupin, 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 Taupin. I pronounce it the French way, Taupin. Um, Bernie has been uh, making the media rounds. He's been in like every outlet. I listened to a two hour interview with Mark Marin, which was very, very interesting um, just because of their very different personal styles. Uh, And the, um, and, uh, and in every magazine, you know, uh, flogging a memoir that he has written, uh, which is about his, his life and his time writing all the lyrics for Elton John, or at least all the ones that you remember. Um, so that's, uh, you know, so he's been around and he apparently, uh, decided, um, you know, decided that he was not going to have the normal anodyne sort of press tour, just uh, repeating the same sound bites over and over and over. Uh, you, you read some of these things and you heard shots fired. So Mark brought us a little, a, a couple quotes from, uh, you were, you were reading what vulture or something, Mark, where did yep. you, where did yeah, you yeah, hear this? Yeah, he, and what did he, he say? He did- he did an interview in Vulture, and the interviewer asked him the question, are there other things in pop songs that drive you crazy? And our our bro unloads. Okay, first he goes after Kenny Rogers and the Gambler. Um, he doesn't like a train bound for nowhere just because um, it's uh, it, it's just there to, to set up a rhyme. But then he really goes off, and uh, that had us, uh, and then sparked our whole conversation around the famous line in uh, the song Piano Man by Billy Joel, which, you know, starts with there. It's a, you know, it's, uh, it's nine o'clock on a Saturday. The regular crowd shuffles in. There's an old man sitting next to me making love to his tonic and gin. And, and Bernie Taubin really, really hates this. He says it's very dumb. He says it's the quote unquote worst, one of the worst ever. Because who says tonic and gin? I'd kill myself rather than do that. Wow! Tell us, tell us how you really feel, Bernie. Okay, yeah, <laughs> tell us how shots, you really feel. Shots fired. What? D- just 
just, you know, for reference, what you're supposed to say, something like that, when, when an interviewer asks you, is, is there anything in pop music that annoys you? You're supposed to say, you know, sometimes my colleagues, sometimes my fellow songwriters are too good. And I find it so hard <laughs> to keep up to the standard that, you right, know, right. that they all set, uh, at, that Diane Warren and, you know, I don't know who's a, who's a, that the Rolling Stones and that, uh, you know, Billy Joel set. You don't, you don't come for them. You don't. That's just not done. And maybe he's just, uh, you know, maybe he is just all out of uh, tonics and gins to give. And that's uh, that's why he, he talks like that. So I don't know. So so tonic and gin gate. He says that no one says it. It's not a, 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 a phrase in natural language. You wouldn't say it that way. So it's a bad song lyric because it's forced to make the rhyme happen. Um, so, you know, this is a, this is a perfect job for the overthinking it debating society, I think. Resolved, gentlemen, resolved. Uh, tonic and gin is bad lyric writing. Mark, you, you brought it to us. So do you want to take a position before, before we go on? I think it's totally fine. And here's the other thing that I will readily admit without any shame at all is that I've, you know, been listening to this song for the better part of like, I don't know, 30 years, you know, the last 30 years of my time on earth. And uh, it was not until I read this interview with Bernie Taupin that it occurred to me that tonic and gin was the inverse of gin and tonic. <laughs> it probably has to do with the fact that when I heard it, I was like, you know, uh, a preteen and didn't have, you know, a complex lexicon of alcoholic beverages to reference against. Um, but uh, it just like, OK, tonic and gin are just like two separate things. And like, sure, you know, like I, I know what, I knew that gin was a type of alcohol and tonic, is, you know, like uh, something that's like a pick me up. Sure. You know, he's like he's just really um, maybe he uh, had malaria. Maybe he had malaria and he needed the, the quinine for his. Malaria. You know, actually, around this around this time, I, I in, in dare in school, they taught us that mixing uppers and downers was a bad idea. So I knew that this person was probably in pretty bad shape. That was my takeaway. <laughs> he's, he's actually getting behind a speedball. That, that was the original lyric. There you go. Um, so, yeah, I, I and and. You know, there's all sorts of other kind of funny, odd turns of phrases in this song. And also, like, as we talked about many times on this podcast, right, uh, song lyrics are a funny thing, right? They're not really meant to be taken as poetry. They certainly aren't prose. Um, they're there to buttress and work against and also complement the sounds that you're hearing as well. And in some cases as well, like, the, you know, the, the music video or, you know, a, um, a stage or a movie action that you see. So song, song lyrics are weird. Um, and I, I give them a lot of license. The songwriters, a lot of license and latitude, just kind of like throw stuff out there. And if it sticks, it sticks and tonic and gin. Yeah, it works for me. Interesting. That's my thing. So, so Jordan, I know two things about you. One is that you are a musicologist and two, that you are a mixologist, uh, at my, <laughs> at the bachelor party before I got married, you, uh, you made me some Manhattans that knocked me on my butt. So, uh, two questions. What do you think of these song lyrics? A and two, what is a tonic and gin anyway? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I have to preamble this by saying that I grew up in like within a hundred miles of long Island. And therefore I am not capable of having a rational discussion about like the goodness or badness of Billy Joel. It's not even that, like, I think that he's good. Exactly. It's sort of like asking, you know, is air good? Is the sun good? Right. <laughs> it's just a, a part of life, a part of the culture that we all exist within 
Like you, you have those those two volumes of Billy Joel's greatest hits, the two the two CD set, right? As far as I was concerned, they emerged by spontaneous generation, the way that Aristotle thought that maggots came out of raw meat, <laughs> uh-huh. right? Like really, what happened was our parents bought them and left them in like our cars before we were old enough to understand what CDs were. Right. But my generation, we came to them that way, and it was just like there as the background part of your culture. So like you know if uh <laughs> so like. Near where, near where you grew up, like if your parents gave you a, an old beat up used car when you were 16, it's likely that the cassette tape stuck in the, the cassette tape player that you couldn't get out, right? Because it's just the mechanism that, that ejected the tapes wasn't working. Uh, it would, that it was like, uh, that it was definitely a Billy Joel album or, you know, nine Quite times like- out of 10. Yeah, the the first album that I remember owning was a cassette tape of Stormfront by Billy Joel. Yes, uh, not the first one I bought with my own money, but the first one that, as far as I know, I ever owned. So you know, take it take it for granted that I'm not here uh, speaking like a person who's. Uh, Sane, <laughs> but I think it's a great line, and I, I really I, I object to this whole narrative. So first of all, um, you, I think you probably you must have set this up on purpose. The well, actually, right, Matt? That the whole reason that there are gin and tonics is because of malaria, right? Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, gin and tonic is gin, which is alcohol, right? And tonic water, which is quinine, to keep off the shakes. And it was just you know British people in the uh, the various subtropical regions that they had conquered. Um, you know, trying to stave off the malaria and the boredom simultaneously. That's why we've got these things. Billy Joel knows this, I think. And I think that at some point, probably he, if I have to guess, he like worked out the riff of Piano Man first and was going da-da-da-da in his head. And at some point thought tonic and gin. And I, I'm sure, I'm a thousand percent sure that he didn't do that to force the rhyme. I'm sure he came up with that and wrote the rhyme that goes with it later. Because the line that it's rhyming with is the regular crowd shuffles in. Like, who's going to write that and then be like, well, gosh, you know, if I say gin and tonic, it won't rhyme. Be like, no, I must have the regular crowd shuffles in. Like, why not? Why not? uh, The regular, the regular crowd falls in line. There's an old man sitting next to me making love to his bottle of wine or something like that. There's a thousand things you can do. Tonic and gin. I think that Billy Joel thought it was clever and he built the whole like quatrain around that. So I think that Topin is just wrong about this, and I will, I will take that to my grave. Take it, you know, but as as said, I'm a partisan. I mean, the, the very obvious thing that he could have done is just making love to his bottle of gin, right? I think Jordan, you actually suggested that as well. Um, yeah, bottle of but, gin, glass full of gin, you know. Right, I think yeah, I said the argument, be, the argument, the ar- you, so you're arguing that it's intentional from from the premise that it would be so easy to fix if it were in fact a mistake. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, that he he thought it was good and did it on purpose. I think that's that's the one thing I will say about Billy Joel is that all of his music he thinks that it's good and he does it on purpose. <laughs> uh, Blinky, you want to get in here uh, on this? Or are you too busy sampling your tonic and gin to uh, to jump in the the conversation? So here's the thing. At first, I agreed that tonic and gin felt like a force to make a rhyme work, and it's not something that somebody would normally say. But the more I think about the lyrics, there's something going on with this old man in particular. <laughs> he is a, a quixotic, uh, like a Cheshire cat type. Well, let, let me let me contrast him with another character. So in the second verse, we meet uh, John at the bar, 
right? And Jonathan Barr, there there are two characters that have a direct quotation in this. So Jonathan Barr says, and I'm just going to say it to you, Bill, I believe this is killing me. Well, I'm sure that I could be a movie star if I could get out of this place, which is like fairly that that's how people normally speak. Let's contrast that with the old man who is who's drinking this sort of strangely phrased tonic and gin. He starts, son, can you play me a memory? Which is which is a definitely an odd sort of poetic thing to say. And then he says, it's sad and it's sweet and I knew it complete, which is like another weird construction, right? Instead of like, I knew the whole thing or I I knew it completely. I knew it complete when I wore a younger man's clothes and sort of put it all together. How do you even respond to that? Like his request is, can you play me a song that I used to know? (laughs) And so there's something, you know, this being the first character that we meet and his request being so fanciful and surreal that there's something that feels right about his drink being a little off his drink being a little uh, Mm. topsy turvy. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's what he's a, he's a pirate or something like that. He's, you know, he's he's a a Vietnam veteran has PTSD, I think is a pretty reasonable assertion in the Billy Joel verse. Yeah. Or I mean, maybe another way to put it is that like, this is offered as a direct quotation, but you get the feeling that like this is this is the essence of what everyone is asking, right? That they all want to conjure up a feeling. They all want a Billy Joel to play them a memory, right? And and so it's it's maybe sort of like he's telling us, you know, what what the um the subtext is. Um and so there, there's something maybe the fact that he's reversing gin and tonic to tonic and gin is a sort of a, a tell, a sort of telegraph that he's reversing text and subtext. That when he says he says, that's not what he's actually saying, but that's what he means. Yeah. You know, if you want to really that, you know. want to really put pressure on that, right? Think about the various things that the people want, right? John wants to go be a movie star. Um, Davy presumably wants to get out of the Navy. Uh, Paul, the real estate novelist, uh, has never had time for a wife. Presumably, he wants the wife, right? What, what is a all... what is a real estate novelist? Just sorry, sidebar, quick. <laughs> uh, sidebar, quick. So it's either someone who writes like those descriptions of houses in real estate guys, you know, charming oh, yeah. bungalow, blah, blah blah blah, or it's someone who writes novels only for the money and hates the novels that they write. So they write novels to buy real estate. We had a we had a whole discussion about this in the, in the back channel. It never made it to be a think tank, but I think we all kind of gravitated towards the second of those oh, interpretations. Yeah. By the um, way, I'm on I'm on a genius right now, and the annotation claims that uh, Paul is based on a real life real estate agent who Billy Joel would always see at the bar, who would always claim to be working on the great American novel. But it was oh, sort of like everyone good. everyone sort of understood that like he was never going to get the novel done the same way that – it was almost like he never had time for a wife. So how was he ever going to do the novel? Because that's the order of things, right? It's like first you get the wife, then you write the novel. Then you get the power. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in America. First you, first you get the wife, then you write the novel. <laughs> But the interesting thing about all these people is that, like, their desires are – have come unstuck in time, right? Like, really, John at the bar, like, it's too late for him to be a movie star. Perhaps there was a an off-ramp earlier in his life that he could have taken that would have gone to that place. But it's not like he can leave now and do it. 
Uh, they're all kind of dreaming for a future which was once open to them but is now closed to them. So the fact that uh, the tonic and gin is temporally reversed, right? Like that's your first clue to this. When I wore a younger man's clothes, I had this dream. I'd like you to give me that dream again. Yeah, <laughs> that. Um, yeah. So that. So uh, I mean, the there's an interesting relationship I think between the the characters in the song and the the listeners of the song, right? Because w- what we're doing is listening to Billy Joel playing piano and singing a song. What all the characters, what all the kind of the the dead end losers in the bar are doing is, I mean, that's that's unkind. What all the the people who have fallen on hard times or who just uh, you know I don't know got some got some hard knocks along the way, right? Like and are are uh, um, coming to the bar to forget about life for a while, right? Like what they're doing is listening to Billy Joel play piano and sing <laughs> and sing a song. So are we like, you know, which which are you? Are you uh, John at the bar? Are you Davy who's still in the Navy? Are you an old man sitting next? Are you an old man making love to your tom- tonic and gin? A waitress practicing politics? Uh, you know, the manager, are you the manager giving, giving Bill, uh, Bill a smile? Cause he knows that it's me. They've been coming to see to forget about life for a while. And I mean, this is, so this is a song about the moment, the kind of like, you know, sort of schmaltzy, uh, moment where like, you know, you get real, uh, drunk and sentimental at, at a piano bar. No, I, I, I actually spent some of my twenties playing piano in a bar on the Connecticut shore, you know, for, for, uh, drunk people who would get sloppy and sentimental. You know what they wanted to hear? Piano man. Yeah. <laughs> they Did they sit hear... in the bar and put bread in your jar and ask, Hey Matt, rather, what are you doing here? They didn't, they didn't put bread in my jar, but I got a free burger with my shift. I think I got a hundred bucks for playing for like three or four hours and I got a free burger and uh, all the, what, all I could drink. So that in my twenties, that was Matt, a good, Matt, it was a good night. The, the bread isn't literal. Oh, it's, it's money. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. Oh my God. Like I was like, just wait, jar stuffed full of rolls. I was like, Oh my God, you brought a ciabatta that won't fit into this oversized bread. <laughs> yes. Okay. One of those really Bernie oversized. It's like, yeah. pretty tough. is also very mad about this, right? It's like, who puts bread in a jar? <laughs> That's not where bread goes. <laughs> um, that, by the way, I mean, that, that lyric is critical, right, to the meaning of the song is that they he's he's looking at all these people in a pitying way, right? He's looking around the bar and he's like, all these people are going nowhere. But then everyone is looking back at him and saying the same thing. They're like, what are you doing here? Like, why are you still stuck here? And it's sort of like everybody feels like they deserve better. Everyone is looking at everyone around them wondering why this is all life has to offer them. And, of course, like the song is pointing a mirror at all of us because we are just listening to Billy Joel sing the song that he wrote. Right. It's 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 like an endless it's it's uh, one of them snakes that's eating its own tail. Right? <laughs> it's also like it's particularly bizarre to think of somebody going up to a piano bar that they're actually at and being like, hey. I want you to play a song for the real pieces of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I played a don't stop believing a lot at the, when I was doing (laughs) it's great on the, cause that, uh, that beginning riff on the piano people, everyone recognizes it. And then they all start saying, you know, everyone starts singing. I, you know, if you do this, like in a certain spirit, you become a human karaoke machine. 
uh, you know, doing this, doing this sort of thing. And I did not know enough Journey, and I did not know enough Bon Jovi. And I, you know, I was like, hey, you guys want to listen to some like great, like really sensitive covers of Ani DeFranco? And all the all the big roided out guys were like, you know, just a small town girl. Um, is it is it, is it uh is it okay to uh talk a little bit about the gambler? Like because it. It it seems to me that uh, the other sick burn that Bernie Taupin like said was like oh you know tonic and gin's not good because we don't talk like that and a train bound for nowhere I mean the train's bound for somewhere man that's not you know that that strikes me as overly literal I think he's I I think you could make a case it sounds like we don't agree with it but you could make a case that tonic and gin is bad writing you know but but a train bound for nowhere is absolutely not bad writing. Uh, bad writing now matt i know you're really a devotee of the of the gambler i i'm assuming you agree with me here yeah and honestly like i i immediately furiously started gambling uh googling elton john songs to try to come up with a you know ammunition to shoot right back at him and the very first maybe the most famous lyric that he ever wrote is it seemed to be you live your life like a candle in the wind so i don't think he's He's against poetic expression, right? It, it feels very strange to me where he's like, you're not allowed well, go on, Matt, to continue. be evocative. Continue, continue. It seems to me you live your life like a candle in the wind. Oh, is it the fact? So Never knowing okay who to, to turn okay to. It's to be poetic as long as you go ahead and explain exactly why you would use that. But like no, it's not, it's not even. What, what candle in the wind has an existential dilemma about who to turn to when the rain sets in. The candle is an inanimate object, Bernie. The candle doesn't have any agency at all. You know, uh, it's not. It's not like unless, the can- unless you're Lumiere in an enchanted castle, and it's 1989, and you're in Disney, 1990 something, and you're in Disney. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so there you go, Bernie. Like lazy metaphor, right there in your most in your most famous. I'm sorry, Matt. I I got I got mad and and derailed you a little bit. But get back on your train bound for nowhere, and and you know, tell me more about this uh, this strange this strange uh, stranger who's sitting across from you on the train, and who will give you some advice for a taste of your whiskey um so it's interesting because i was i uh, another one i thought of was rocket man right which i sort of assumed was a song from like the the 70s about drugs um and you know once again uses metaphor and poetic language and i googled it and it turns out that he actually is kind of a literal dude and his direct quote is that it was inspired by a Ray Bradbury story. And he says, in that book, there was a story called The Rocket Man. This is the the the, the book is called The Illustrated Man, which is a, a Ray Bradbury short story collection. So he says there was a story called The Rocket Man, which is about how astronauts in the future would become sort of an everyday job. So I kind of took that idea and ran with it. Um, to which, by the way, the, the, and, and then it says Elton John, who was also in the, the interview, added, do you know what? I never knew that. <laughs> um, which I think is there's something actually really interesting about that is that like you know Elton John records and performs this song Rocket Man like hundreds of times and never even bothers to to discuss with the lyricists like what is this song about what does this mean what am I evoking here whereas to him the Bernie this is just about uh, what it might be like in the future to to work in space and to be a Rocket Man. And it's not meant to be, you know, I, I always associated with this sort of William Shatner, very strange avant-garde production at, what, what was it, like at the at the uh, the Emmys? 
You guys, you guys know the you're one talking I'm about talking like the, the spoken man thing where he's oh, yeah. like uh, smoking a cigarette and like staring off in the space. Yeah, very famous. Um, yeah, but it just it feels especially for a country song, you know that that it, there's such a tradition of like you know the the, the sort of um poetic uh, invocations of like you know the the sort of loneliness and emptiness of the West and everything. So the idea of like a train, you know. Uh, you know, sort of these lonely drifters on a train bound for nowhere seems such a well-worn cliche that it, it feels weird to pluck out out of all the lyrics you've heard over the last 60 years of your life and to, to hold that one up as a glaring example of of poor uh, poor workmanship. Maybe, maybe it's what, also like, oh yeah, you go, Jordan. The like the idea of rounding down from from one to zero in poetry is like so well established. The idea of like the road leads to nowhere, or you know, does does he have a problem with um with Eleanor Rigby, where it's like uh, writing his sermons that no one will hear? Well, clearly Father Mackenzie himself will hear them, so that's one person. Thanks, right? <laughs> There's something very very odd about that kind of a uh, kind of puritanism. I think. All right, I'm going to try to defend Bernie Taupin's POV here for just. A second, because um, I don't have a strong attachment to this to this song. Like, then, and I'm going to go to Jordan's example. He just mentioned there, Eleanor Rigby. Right, that song starts out with a lot of specificity straight out of the gate. Eleanor Rigby, blah blah blah, does this thing. Right, Father McKenzie does this, that, and the other. Right, um, and this one is, uh, comes out of the gate with opening up with ambiguity, and I, I feel like Bernie Toppin thinks like, well, this is a missed opportunity to give to hang some specificity to the lyrics, right? We've talked a lot about this on this podcast and probably on TFT as well, Theory of the Turntables, about how um, in, in a kind of a paradoxical way, mentioning specific places like Bruce Springsteen and mountain goats, you know, talking about, uh, here's a mountain goat lyric, right? He, she flew in from sunny Taipei, right? Again, like just like it, it, it gives your mind something specific to anchor onto, um, and somehow, uh, I don't know, opens up more possibilities. Uh, and Matt, like, r- rather, you, 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 you covered this territory before here. Like, am, am I onto something? Yeah, like, well, I mean, to... the, the sort of truism is that the more specific you get, the more universal you get because you're, yeah. you end yeah. up talking about real life and real life is, you know, the real experiences of people are the, the things that are universal, which I'd just like to point out, the more you're, you're dedicated to that, to like art unites the human family type of discourse, the more small C conservative you are, uh, you know, like the more you believe that, like, like Homer's epics can can speak to us today uh, because, you know, we all feel the same feelings is is, you know, counter to the to the small L liberalism idea that like we are, I guess, capital L liberalism idea that like people are improvable. And we're you know, if we're all the same, if I can if I can understand the art and the songs and the, the whatever that everyone has made for time immemorial, you know, the more I think that like human nature is kind of a constant um and doesn't change. And, and so like the, you can put in specific things. You can like really like write about, you know, a novelist can write about their hometown and like the kind of the, the specifics of like where the post office was or something like that. Because like, uh, maybe your post office wasn't in the same place, but you had something akin to that, uh, in your life. And, and somehow the, the authenticity of it will, um, will ring, will ring true to you. And that's like, you know, uh, that's really, that's really uh, good writing, I think, but it's not, it's kind of not the only way to do that. Right. Like, cause the, the other thing, not just the, the literal landscape, but also the, the sort of the, the metaphorical landscape um, is also shared uh, in the human condition. Right. It's also something that is, has been all uh, 
you know, all the same since, since time immemorial. I mean, I guess, I guess like you wouldn't have said, uh, I'm on a train bound for nowhere if you're Odysseus, right? You'd be like, I'm on a, what, a chariot. I'm on a, a, a galley ship bound for nowhere or something. But like, uh, you know, a lot of that, uh, a lot of that epic is about being on a conveyance bound for nowhere. Um, and that's, uh, you know, an, an experience that, that everyone has had. I mean, my, my thing is that maybe like, just like the, the, you know, kind of dead end folks in the bar bar uh in john's bar um the train bound for nowhere it's a it's a you know a, a trope of being feeling aimless in life right and, and feeling like you don't really have a purpose or you don't really have clear intentions M- maybe what bernie taupin just doesn't like is is sad sacks you know maybe his thing is like he's just against you know people sitting around whether it's uh uh, whether it's in a train, <laughs> whether it's in a bar, I do not like them in a train. I do not like them in a bar. And that's, uh, you know, that, that's his, his, I don't know, his, his major hang up. I don't know. I, I like the gambler uh, a lot. I mean, there's an interesting thing to what you say there that like, so say you wanted to write a song about how really early rock and roll music was super great, right? You could write old time rock and roll, which is just like literally, that early rock was pretty good. I'm not gonna get specific about this, right? Or you could sort of write in, crocodile. in the style of old time rock, right? A little evocative, like slightly evocative. But the lyrics are the lyrics are just kind of like talking in generalities. Whereas uh, the the Bernie Taupin version of this is crocodile rock, where he invents this whole song, right, <laughs> and talks about like the the specific idea of. Like, remember when we heard this song back in the day and like these specific people were listening to it. It's like trying so maybe to gaslight something... all of England. Well, but I mean, like the question is who, which one of those does a better job of making you nostalgic for old time rock and roll, right? Like, I don't know. Do you, do you have an opinion? You know what the, the lyric that always sort of struck me about old time rock and roll is, is like at the very beginning where he's like, just take those old records off the shelf, right? So he's asking the listener to take the old records. And then he says, I'll sit and listen to them by myself. So it's almost like the, sort of a misanthropic old man who is asking you to go away so he can enjoy the music that only he can appreciate, right? Like you wouldn't get it. Like he knows you're you're not cool enough. He knows that like you you kids today. So I'm gonna go sit and listen to them by the cell by myself. Whereas Crocodile Rock is the opposite. Where it's like remember, we all love this song, right? We were all bonded together by it, right? And it's like you know, it, it's a communal shared memory of something that never actually happened, as opposed to like something that isolates Bob Seeker, right? And that like he feels like he is the the only survivor of the old time rock and roll era. Let me and, uh, yeah, and, and oh, like sorry. like many people in that kind of a true believer kind of situation, rather than actually putting forward the stuff that he remembers and believes in, he just sort of talks about how cool it is or how alone he is in his uh, in his appreciation of it. Right. But, like you, you never get to hear the old time rock and roll. 
Well, no, you do, because, right, like, the song is actually a pretty good exemplar of that. It's got that, like, you know, blues sort of, like, riff-based um, sort of structure that, like, so it is, it actually is a, a it is what, uh, auto-descriptive, self-descriptive, right? It is a, um, uh, an exemplar of the thing that it is trying to, to describe and to, and to praise. But, um, there's, I, you know, there is a, a third song, uh, that completes the triptych that we're talking about, written by... Is it a Billy Joel song? It's a Billy Joel song. <laughs> What's the matter with the clothes that I'm wearing? Can't you tell that your tie's too wide? Maybe I should buy some old tab collars. Welcome back to the age of jive, which is a... Billy Joel just ragging on himself, just ripping himself to <laughs> But also just, it is an accumulation of specific detail, of specific anthropological detail vis-a-vis popular costume, you know, and in various points in, in history. Uh... Everybody's, uh, you know, uh, where have you been hiding out lately, honey? You can't dress trashy till you spend a lot of money, which is a line he ripped off of Dolly Parton, who always says it costs a lot of money to look this cheap. Everybody's talking about the new sound funny, but it's still rock and roll to me. Uh, the way, uh, yeah, anyway, it's a, it's a great, there's a, there's a great, you know, there's, there's a great song like the 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 and it it is actually kind of dialectically the synthesis right like because it is uh no matter what it is it's still uh it's still rock and roll to me like you you may think that there that there's a difference between the old time rock and roll and the uh you know and the new music that ain't that ain't got the same soul but um you know what billy joel says is next phase new wave dance craze anyways it's still rock and roll to me and then there's a saxophone solo. So you really know it yeah. is rock and roll. <laughs> and and so, he does it on purpose because he thinks it's good. Again. <laughs> so, I mean, what is Billy Joel saying versus Bob Seger? Bob Seger is like, I like the old time rock and roll. If you take me to a place where they're playing new rock and roll, I will I will refuse to to enjoy it, right? Like, I will boycott it. Where is that? Like, isn't the sort of the, the abbreviated chorus of uh, still rock and roll to me is like, Everything is rock and roll, right? Like any, I enjoy it all, right? Like I don't discriminate. I, I like un, unlike the sort of uh, the 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 interlocutor uh, that he's he's arguing with. He's not, um, uh, you know, trying to trying to draw this firm uh, mean girl style line between like what's cool and what's uncool. And that like you know you, you can't wear this anymore. That's not what we do. Is he's just like it's all it's still rock and roll. But it's it's he says like hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk, even if it's old junk. So it, it sort of implies to me that like the new stuff is also rock and roll, right? Yeah, no, he, yeah. he's he's rejecting these dichotomies, right? Like he's rejecting you know a kind of like fashion based in in grouping and out grouping kind of discourse about about this music and subsuming it all under the label of of rock and roll, which is you know an interesting an interesting thing that you know he is doing for his own nefarious political reasons. But there, you know, but you know, the, the less said about that, the better. I mean, I'd say that that both Elton John and Bob Seger are saying that rock, old time rock and roll is transcendent, right? And it's about this thing that you don't have. Uh, whereas with Billy Joel, he's saying that old time rock and roll is imminent and it's kind of constantly present whether you want it or not. And all you need to do is kind of open yourself to that experience. Just be be ready for the, you know, for the experience of rock. Be ready. Yeah, for no man knows the day or the hour. Um, and then, I mean, for yeah. and for what it's worth, it's sort of a self fulfilling prophecy because I mean, I think all, I think um, still rock and roll to me 
is sort of written in response to criticism, industry criticism. He was, he was, um, under that, like, you know, his, his sound is sort of out of date. That is, he's not, he's not eighties enough. Right. That like, you know, being a singer songwriter was like a little bit out of step with the times. And he writes this song sort of like about the, you know, sort of like, uh, I'm not going to write you a love song. Right. We're sort of like taking the notes and turning them into like a poison pen letter back at the, back at the record executives. And I believe that song like went number one and was like a giant, giant hit for Billy Joel. Um, and so it sort of proves his point, which is that like, you know, the old sound is not, uh, still has currency. Right. That like he's he's he is uh you know not not out of date not out of step he can still uh still uh rise to the top of the charts yeah absolutely do we have even any- with something that uh, so even with something that is kind of self consciously old fashioned sounding with that shuffle beat and everything yeah does it um do you, do you have a favorite uh favorite or least favorite Billy Joel lyric i mean you know here on here on billy joel cast i mean jordan i think i think you brought i saw something in the in the slack about a whole a whole album that i want to like dive deep dive deep deep into and swim in a in a particular river uh do you know what river (laughs) that is it's i didn't mean to say that um that i didn't like the whole album so like the the question that went around on the slack was let's all bring in one billy joel lyric that we love and one billy joel lyric that we hate and i have a i have a pretty specific idea about like what makes billy joel good as a lyricist and what he kind of like doesn't do well um and i think that the the example of what's what's bad generally it's like i'm not sure that billy joel is actually a great lyricist at the level of the song because when he gets into an extended metaphor <laughs> he often kind of like gets lost so river of dreams like when i said that uh, my bad lyric was river of dreams all of it i didn't mean the album <laughs> the song but the thing about the river of dreams right so like okay so in the middle of the night he goes walking in his sleep from the mountains of faith to the river so deep right and the river is eventually going to be the river of dreams uh-huh leave aside the kind of incoherence of when I go to sleep, I have this dream about walking up to this river and in the river, there are dreams like, no, you're already dreaming. My man, it's like, like an inception but, thing, right? Where he yeah. like goes deeper. But the thing that bothers me really is like, okay, so there's the mountains of faith and the Valley of fear and the jungle of doubt and the desert of truth. And what is this nonsense, right? Like, what is, what is the landscape that's being charted out here? I don't know, and I don't care. And that, to me, is, like, the worst thing with Billy Joel. So, like, he'll get an extended metaphor in mind, and, like, there won't actually be anything to derive from it that is good. <laughs> However, I, I want to then pivot to, like, what I think he does really, really well. And this goes back to a thing that Mark said earlier, which is that like song lyrics, they're not quite poetry. They're certainly not prose because their point is to like to go along with the music and be good along with the music. And that I think Billy Joel does like, remarkably well. So um, there's uh, an, an example that I had is in um, in Uptown Girl, right? So when you get to the point where uh, it goes – 
And when she knows what she wants from her time, and when she wakes up and makes up her mind, and then notice the, like the the change in the melody and the harmony right here. She'll see I'm not so tough just because. I'm in love. Now, if you make that into prose, she'll see I'm not so tough just because I'm in love. It's kind of nothing. But having those harmonic shifts underneath it, right, going from the kind of like confidence and um, and kind of exuberance of the she knows what she wants from her time, she wakes up and makes up her mind part, to the kind of tentative, uh, I don't know if it's actually minor key, but there's a minor interval in there somewhere of she'll see I'm not so tough. And then there's like almost a Picardy third effect going from minor to major or something on the I'm in love, right? Those words come to have meanings that they don't have in any other context, right? Like, it's, it's the lyrics serve to make the music meaningful. The music serves to make the lyrics good. And that's where I think that Billy Joel is, like, actually an excellent songwriter. It's on that kind of micro, micro level. And it's good, like, line by line. Also, the the rhythm, the fa- right? You said, the, when you said it, it's interesting. You said, you see, I'm I'm not so tough just cu- just because I'm in love with an... Uh, right, you you said it kind of... But, duh, 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 duh. Da 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 da. Right, makes the really kind of operates that internal rhyme in a way that 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 sort of makes you feel it. It sort of forces you to to feel it and and takes you on a journey with it. So yes, in addition, sorry, I've just got excited by what you were saying. And rhythm, in addition to the to the the tools of of melody and harmony, I I want to give you a counterexample, Jordan, um, of a terrible uh terrible Billy Joel lyric where he is just yes, do. Really, uh, really falling down on putting uh, sounds, you know, words, uh, uh, not exactly words, sounds, uh, melody and harmony together. And it's it's from River of Dreams. And it goes. And it's the the kind of like falsetto. There's this falsetto riff that goes before the in the middle of the night part. Right. Do you, can you call to mind the, the part of the song that I'm talking about? I, I'm fairly certain that what you're singing is in the jungle, the mighty jungle, the it's lions. Not. It totally <laughs> rips off the much better falsetto line. Uh, totally rips off the much better falsetto line from in the jungle, the mighty jungle, which is, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a, a so, so much better. And it is a, it is a weak misreading of the text, <laughs> Mr. Joel. I, I will say, uh, that, um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm that anyway, that was my, when we thought of something that annoys us, uh, annoys us, but let me, let me give you one, or I'm sorry, Matt, do you want to, do you want to come at us with one before I, before I hijack and, and take another one? I mean, I had I had the, the the example of songwriting that I just think is is sort of lazy lazy lyrics is uh, the song uh, "You May Be Right," where it's just sort of it, goes, it starts Friday night I crashed your party Saturday I said I'm sorry so that's maybe a half rhyme and then Sunday came and trashed me out again that doesn't rhyme with anything right because it's, it's what is it? it's like a like a what a a b and then like c c d and it was i was only having fun wasn't hurting anyone fun and i guess that i guess that rhymes and we all enjoyed the weekend for a change and it really feels to me that it should rhyme with again right sunday came and trashed me out again 
And then it's like, you know, like I mean, I'm sure like Matt, you know, the, the rhyme scheme that we're talking about, right? Where it should be like AAB and then CCB, right? Sure. It, but it doesn't work that way. It's a bunch of half rhymes and sort of like incomplete rhyme. There's also like a, a bunch of things sort of like thematically about that particular song that I don't like. Like there's the there's a, a part where like it implies that he's driving drunk where it's like you told me not to drive, but I made it home alive. So you said that only proves that I'm insane. He actually like later in his life was pulled over driving drunk and had to go to rehab, which makes the lyric a lot less cute when it's real behavior as opposed to like a, a character. And then just just the, the way the way that he's talking to this woman where, you know, he's like, don't, don't try to change me, accept all my bad behavior. Um, and then, you know, if I'm crazy that it's true that it's all because of you and you wouldn't want me any other way. So he's like, almost like uh, turning it back on her where he's sort of like, if I'm sort of self-destructed and you don't like all of my behavior, it's your fault. Um, and secretly you love it. And it just it just feels like it. I think it's supposed to be like a playful song about like a sort of like a fun bad boy, but it comes off as like sort of borderline abusive um, and it doesn't rhyme. So I, I don't know. Uh, I don't love that one. So it's morally it's morally bad because it's borderline abusive and it's aesthetically bad because it doesn't rhyme. Are those two things? Are those two things related? Are the, is the aesthetic badness related to the moral badness or is it just I coincidental? Mean- Billy Joel is not shy about singing in character, right? About like doing a scene from an Italian restaurant or singing a song about like the experience of being in the Vietnam war or being like a deep sea fisherman. And so like he get your or leaving something like moving out, like people that have like a very, you know, that, that almost like, uh, you know, the jukebox musical for Billy Joel makes total sense because he's, he's telling stories about particular people. And it feels like in the, you may be right song. It just feels like I, I don't have like a clear sense of this character that he's evoking. And it feels like it's sort of like a lazy response to actual real world criticism that he received from people who don't like the fact that he drives his motorcycle when he's a little tipsy. Yeah. yeah. That's that's fair. And since you brought up scenes from Italian restaurant, let me just jump in here. And uh, first of all, well, actually, right. He's not singing from first person point of view as a character in that song, right? He is a third person omniscient narrator. Um, and, uh, I think to that point, like the, I think the, it avoids some of the, the issues that we've been talking about here. And like, I, I want to just call out, uh, this one particular verse, like in the middle section, um, that I think has a lot of interesting and good stuff going on here. Again, I'm, I'm the Billy Joel fan here, by the way, I'm the one who's actually seen him in concert. I paid cash money to see him in concert. Um, Enjoy his music a lot. Okay, so this is the part where it goes, they got an apartment with deep pile carpets and a couple of paintings from Sears. And hang with me, this one, a big water bed that they bought with the bread they had saved for a couple of years. They started to fight when the money got tight and they just couldn't count on the tears. So lots of stuff going on here, right? Like again, That's, that's what that's the specific- bread is for. Yeah, right. The bread, the bread was actually the, currency in the seventies. Yeah, because of inflation, you stuffed it. You stuffed it inside a waterbed, and it soaked up the water. <laughs> oh god! Exactly right. I mean, like, there's the specificity. There's like the, um, I don't know what the, the bourgeois like, um, kind of uh, uh reaches towards um some sort of like sophistication or luxury, right? Um, and there's also um. But it's all kind of mundane, right? Um, and then this, the, the turn, right, is that they, they go from, uh, you know, they bought a waterbed and then immediately then 
they start to fight because of the money they lost at the waterbed and then they split up and get a divorce and so like the it's it's inherently meant to be a little ridiculous there right like the whole psychodrama of the song is very um heightened um and exaggerated intentionally um you know uh, and all kind of like but and then all packaged up in like a uh, um a cozy italian restaurant that everyone has been to um again like kind of simply the idea of piano man right it's like you know it's all of us right we are all these like you know brenda and eddie uh, at the at, at the italian restaurant i enjoy this song a lot and i just wanted to like uh, give some credit to this um to this particular set of lyrics and also just one other quick thing here right uh, hang with me here again a big water bed that they that they bought with the bread all of the b and r business going on here right it's very busy um it may be perhaps to a fault but it's also like um, requires a lot of dexterity in delivering that right in, in pretty fast succession right a big water bed that they bought with the bread they saved for a couple of years i think it's pretty cool it Fine. is Give them some credit. it is except it's it is uh, it's sort of at variance with the rhythm the the rhythm of of natural speech right like yeah a big water bed it's not a big water bed a big water bed it's a big water bed Right. And that's that's something that I, that I've noticed a little bit. It kind of goes hand in hand with what Jordan was saying about sort of really operating the kind of like rhythmic and syllabic and, and um, you know, uh, uh, semiotic uh, parts of language along with the melody and harmony and rhythm of this of the song um, th- that like. uh not so tough just because I'm in love is is sort of similar a similar thing is going on here where you're feeling the kind of the machine gun yet da 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 and that kind of sprung rhythm of those those particular things. I mean what what I notice poetically about this line is that the the kind of the the water bed the water of the waterbed and the water of tears, right? Like the the um the 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 thing about water like very locally in this verse is that it shouldn't leak it shouldn't be contained with its rubber with within its rubber bladder and not be you know streaming down the streaming down the the sides of your face you know maybe you should sop it up with some of the bread <laughs> i'm curious have have any of you ever slept on a waterbed i've i've, I've jumped i've jumped you. on a waterbed they they told me not to but i did anyway <laughs> Because like I, I have, and I can say another thing that's great about this metaphor is that a big water bed is something that you think you're supposed to want, but it sucks. <laughs> no, that's that's definitely definitely true. When when uh, when traveling, um, Christina and I both, uh, Christina and I both like, I miss our like rock hard foam Tempur Pedic mattress, you know, at home. This bed is too comfortable and soft and downy and and downy and pillowy. Mm -hmm. And I imagine a waterbed would have the same, you know, effect on your on your back. Did Did any of you see the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movie from a couple years ago, Licorice Pizza? Yeah, of course. So there's a, a big plot point in Licorice Pizza, which is set in the the you know the 70s, right? The the time period of scenes from Italian restaurants uh, about uh, there's a waterbed salesman uh, played by Leonardo DiCaprio's father, who in real life was indeed a waterbed salesman, <laughs> um, and he he does a he has a, a monologue in which he extols the virtues of sleeping on a waterbed. Um, and, and makes it sound really dreamy, but also like super seventies, right? Like it, it, the waterbed is an artifact out of a particular era. Um, and it, 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 it sort of, it 
captures a moment, but also like it, it's something that like you know would instantly become a, a regretful sort of like shameful purchase, right? But like I don't know, I don't know if it was if it was it felt that way at the time that Billy Joel wrote the song, but sort of now looking it back, like the fact that they they bought the waterbed together is like maybe one of many bad decisions that led to the end of the marriage. It was a bad. It was a bad omen. You know, you you know what you call it when your water bread springs a leak at night? The river Nocturnal of dreams. Emissions. The oh. river of dreams. <laughs> Mine's pretty good too, though. Yeah, yeah that was very good. Also. Oh. By the way, as long as we're talking about the specificity of Billy Joel's lyrics, like the 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 way that you know he, he'll drop in like tab collars, I feel like we got to mention Miami 2017, which is true a truly bizarre and wonderful song, a real a little bit of a deep cut um, about uh, it was not written in 2017; it was written in the mid 70s about what he believed. Uh, it might be like to to be a, a refugee from New York City living in Miami in the year 2017 um, after some sort of environmental or systemic catastrophe led to the city being abandoned and destroyed um, and the mafia takes over Mexico. And it is it, it is both like very almost like a like a science fiction novel like it's like a dystopian screenplay like the hunger games but it also is i think very evocative of like a moment in new york city's history a sort of summer of sam feeling that everything is coming apart at the seams and that this way of life in this place might not last right that yeah, it and, sustainable and ironically has become an anthem of new york city's resilience right like yeah it, it came it, it was, yeah, I think was, he, he performed it at this at the, at the post-pandemic concert right to raise money or no, it was it, it came the first instance. This was after 9-11, dude. Did he? And then it came a COVID thing after that as well, because right, the lights I, did, in fact, go go out on Broadway in both of those occasions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it it's is. Yeah, it's, it's gotten it's gotten a real second wind as this song of like, you know, regret, but also defiance. Right. Of that, of that, that like, you know what? They 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 turned our power down and drove us underground, but we went right on with the show. So there's something like both sad and joyous about this sort of like being a witness to the end of things about like watching everything just sink into the ocean. No, the defiance is important, right? Because like, okay, like, well, the people who couldn't hack it, they fled to Florida. But um, the ones who stuck around, right, we're the hardcore. We're the real New Yorkers. New Yorker nowhere was a phrase um, that, that came out uh, in 2020, 2021 uh, during, the, during, during the championship season. And, uh, and just to be very transparent, like also very much resonates with me as someone who freaking stuck through it and continues to stick through it. Yeah, it's true. You, <laughs> didn't, like, de- you didn't decamp to a farm upstate or something like that. No, I don't have a bungalow in the Hamptons um, where, I could, uh, where I could escape to. Sorry, folks. There is something funny about thinking about a chunk of America sinking into the ocean and then the survivors are now in Florida. Like, buddy, I've got some news for you. <laughs> yeah, also that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, I, so I didn't really know this song and just reading over the lyrics on the internet, there's a lot of world building going on in this song. This is really like, you know, I feel like this is some Hunger Games level. You know, they call they call it District 2 up where New York used to be. They say that this was some kind of broad way. Well, <laughs> the only thing that's broad around here is the lack of food. <laughs> <You know. laughs> the, um, 
Yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I I feel like I feel like we've been been hating on Mr. Joel a little bit. Um, can can we uh, can we say some good things about about uh, Mr. Joel's lyrics a little bit to clo- to close this out? Mark, can you can you say more appreciative things uh, about your hero, nay, your god, uh, Billy Joel? <laughs> who who you know. Uh. Oh, you're putting him on the spot here. Well, I, don't, uh, I don't want to put you in the spot. Let me let me give you the lyric that I thought was good. Um, the lyric that I like is sort of sort of akin to something Jordan said before. It's from Longest Time. Uh, that's uh, uh, it's the like the pre-chorus. It's what else can I do? I'm so inspired by you. I haven't been there for the longest time. And I like the, I like the internal rhyme. And actually, as we've been kind of reading these lyrics to each other over the, over the, the internet, I have heard uh, a lot of that, that internal rhyme, you know, sort of structure, uh, where even, even there, they turned our, uh, from, um, Miami, 2017, uh, they held a concert out in Brooklyn to watch the island bridges blow, blow. Okay. So the main rhyme is blow. And turned our power down and drove us underground, but we went right on with the show. And the way that the way that you can use that internal rhyme there to to sort of delay it, it's a good technique. It's actually you brought up the mountain goats before, and I'm not I'm not sure that Billy Joel and the Mountain Goats necessarily ought to be spoken of in the same breath, but it's actually a very good John Darneal trick, also, where you alter where in time the payoff of the rhyme is going to come so that you are anticipating satisfaction in one place, but you get it in another place. And, uh, you know, so like what you, um, what you're expecting is something like, what else can I do? It's only my poo, right? Like you, (laughs) yeah, the, um, you're expecting the, the internal rhyme to fall rhythmically in the same the same place and uh what else can i do i'm so inspired by you uh and that it's on a descending line and that it's you know it's later it's you know rhythmically different because it's not two quarter notes it's two eighth notes and the whole uh <laughs> the whole thing um the whole thing is is nice and sort of pays off in a in a nice way and in that sort of that kind of hyper local way that that Jordan was talking about. I don't know. I thought it was a. Uh, I thought it was a a particularly good right. one. All right. I, I got one more, last thing to to plug for Billy Joel's lyrics, and which is uh, the 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 title and the lyric, "A New York State of Mind," and it's like wonderful ambiguity, right? You know, there's a lot of specific references to New York City, but enough things that kind of evoke the. I guess the greater metro area that like makes it applicable enough to like the broader New York state. So it works. doesn't not work. Okay. That's what I'll say about Billy Joel. It doesn't not work. You know what? The the more I think about Billy Joel, the more it strikes me that the specificity about what his songs are about. I think Bernie Taupin would actually love him because look at somebody like Taylor Swift, right? I think everyone sort of accepts the fact that like a lot of Taylor Swift's love songs and breakup songs are about specific people, but they're a little bit abstracted, right? Like, you know, she's a little coy about who they're about. And certainly she's not going to stop singing one of those songs because the feelings of like who they're about are too close to her, right? That, that the song 
becomes her own and it becomes separate from the circumstances in which it was created. But like, you know, with Billy Joel, like Uptown Girl is about Christy Brigley. Uh, and so it goes about like his breakup with Elle McPherson. And I mean, the, the ones that really get me is like the, the one of my favorite Billy Joel songs is um, She's Always a Woman, right? Which is the song about his first wife who was, by the way, I mean, a, a, a Piano Man is another great example of that. That Piano Man is not like a sort of a fictionalized version of being in a piano bar. Every Almost every single person he mentions is a specific person that he has in mind, a person who was important to him, a person he met. And he's taking like all these real world, almost like he's a reporter. And in She's Always a Woman, right? He's writing about his wife. And it, 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 he also wrote um, Just the Way You Are about her. And when they got divorced in the early 80s, he refused to perform both those songs for about like 25 years. And those are those are classic songs, right? Those are really well-known songs. She's always a woman and just the way you are. And he couldn't perform them because for him, they were about, they weren't just a love song. They were a love song about somebody and every lyric meant something about that one person. And it was uncomfortable and sort of painful to perform them. Um, and I think it wasn't until relatively recently, like, you know, in the, the 2000s or 2010s that he started to go back to those songs. Um, and I think that's interesting because I think most songwriters, even if they originally wrote a song about somebody, eventually the song just becomes, you know, about them. It just becomes part of like their their craft and about their, you know, how they make a living rather than this very personal statement of love to this one person. But I think to Billy Joel, it's like he never, he, you know, his, his songs are about what he says they're about. <laughs> That's a good, that's probably a good one to end on. His songs are about what he says they're about. Though, you know, it says, uh, it, it is said in the Swifter verse, you know, that, that Taylor, Taylor's eyes look a little dead when she sings the, the songs in the lover era because she, uh, <laughs> you know, because, uh, they're about Joe and she can't do it. Um, she didn't sing, uh, she didn't sing Cornelia Street, for example. Uh, as a as a surprise song until the Mexico City shows. Stay corrected. I'm, I'm a person. I'm a person who knows all of these things now. Well, uh, all right. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad that that we uh, that uh, Bernie Toppin gave us the the occasion to give Mr. Um, uh, Mr. Joel uh, the old overthinking it uh, treatment and give his lyrics the the credit that they deserve and the consideration uh, that that yeah. they deserve. And and indeed, I, w- I would call on Billy Joel to go out there and talk some shit about Bernie Taupin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my God, please. So, what? You're a rocket man. You're a rocket man. I didn't see. You know, your your astrophysics is completely off in your in your rocket song, right? Like the 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 fuel mix. You know, you can't put that much hydrogen into the. Yeah, exactly. Definitely, definitely get out there and and uh, drag him. And then we can do a sequel podcast about the music of Elton John. I think that'd be great. <laughs> All right. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking Podcast. Thanks very much for uh, for listening. And thanks to uh, to Matt, to Mark, and to Jordan for podcasting with me. Uh, we got to remember, I, I've said this probably the third time I've, I've said on, on the podcast, there are three only three plots. It's uh, Pete versus man, Pete versus nature, and Pete versus self. And we hope the, uh, <laughs> the, the Pete versus nature storyline uh resolves well uh for that but, uh, pete's fine no, no one no one needs to worry he's he's fine he's just couldn't join us tonight and so we're uh we'll we'll be back with uh with all these fine folks 
again next week. Till then, you can visit us on the internet at overthinking.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. It probably doesn't deserve. I like how, Matt, before the start of this show, you said, I'm going to try not to sing. (laughs) That that didn't last through your intro.